Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, December the 9th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this worldwide radio broadcast. Later on uh, in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the recently held conference on Palestine in the Republic of South Africa that was held earlier this month. There are new reports on the status of fighting in the entire West Asia region. Thousands of weapons are being utilized to continue the war in Palestine. And White House interns have issued an anonymous statement denouncing the foreign policy of President Joe Biden. In the second and third hours, we reviewed developments in Palestine over the last several days. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with our Um Kaltoon Orchestra Film Festival. Uh, this is the opera entitled Hasabak Lel Zimon uh, from 1963, uh, some 60 years ago this year. Let's listen in.
الزمن لا Oh, <laughs> 
Thank you. 
Welcome back, and uh, that was the orchestra. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for this Saturday afternoon, uh, December 9th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. These are just some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. A conference under the title Nelson Mandela in Palestine Confronting Racism to Liberation was held in Johannesburg from December 3rd through the 5th. The conference coincided with the 10th anniversary of the Madiba's passing. Mandela's now famous quote that, quote, we know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of Palestine and the Palestinians was echoed by many speakers during the joint opening session. Addressing delegates, Nelson Mandela's grandson, Chief Manla Mandela, said the occasion was entrenched in an unshakable belief that Palestinians have the absolute right to the land of their forefathers using all available means, including the armed resistance. Delegates uh, discussed everyday mechanisms to challenge the crimes of the settler colonizers all over historic Palestine, how to reinforce international solidarity in the wake of the Al-Aqsa flood operation and the responsibility of international law and human rights bodies and how to challenge the restrictions of mainstream and social media on Palestinian content. Uh, Conference participants were unanimous in their assertion that Palestine has been suffering under the triple bondage of imperialism, racism, and Zionist settler colonialism for 75 years and therefore the armed struggle currently being waged by the resistance in Gaza is justified as per international law. Of particular importance was the clarion call for true and meaningful liberation for Palestine from the Jordanian River to the Mediterranean Sea, a call that embodies the one-state solution called for by the indigenous Palestinians and the inalienable right of return for over the 7 million refugees and their descendants displaced during the 1948 Nakba. Chief Mandela uh, called upon President Cyril Ramaphosa to abandon the two-state delusion in favor 
of a single democratic state for all indigenous peoples of Palestine. We want to call on His Excellency President Cyril Ramaphosa to abandon the thoughts of a Bantu-type solution to Palestine, abandon separate development, racism, and apartheid in occupied Palestine, he said. He added that they would not rest until victory falls on the people of Palestine. Palestine shall be free from the river to the sea. Heart-wrenching testimony was provided by the parents of martyred Muhammad Abu Qadir. Qadir, a 16-year-old Palestinian, was kidnapped and burned alive in Jerusalem on the morning of July 2nd of 2014. You can read this report in its entirety uh, by logging on to the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, in response to statements by the occupation security minister, Yoav Gallant, who mentioned that the Hamas movement has begun to collapse, Israeli media reports contradict this claim, asserting that the Hamas movement in the Gaza Strip remains unaffected. Israeli media reported on Friday that the Israeli military was unable to inflict harm on Hamas, emphasizing that the movement retained command and control in the Gaza Strip. Commenting on the words of the occupation security minister, Yoav Gallant, who claimed that the Hamas movement had begun to collapse, the Palestinian affairs commentator on the Israeli Khan channel, Elior Levy, affirmed that Hamas's core strength has not weakened adding that its strength was not particularly harmed in the area south of the Gaza Strip. In this context, Israeli media commented on the Palestinian resistance involving the launch of rockets and shells towards settlements surrounding the Gaza Strip for over two months as part of the ongoing Operation Al-Aqsa flood. Israeli channels uh, 12 military correspondent near Devoy uh, stated that the firing of rockets, particularly mortar shells from Gaza, towards the Gaza envelope is ongoing. And you can also read this article by going to the Pan-African Newswire website. And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, the LM-90 multiple rocket launcher includes an adjustable platform and contains eight slots, marking another significant development in the resistance's arsenal. Hamas's Al-Qasim Brigade's released cinematic footage yesterday unveiling a new multi-rocket launcher, the MLR LM-90, which holds up to eight rockets at a time. The footage entitled Tel Aviv will be burnt to the ground, Al-Quds will be liberated, showcases yet another milestone for the Palestinian resistance, uh, both in terms of production capabilities and its military arsenal. A placard displayed in the video as resistance fighters arm the system, shows a designed photo of martyrs Ibrahim al-Makadema, one of the Hamas founders and a prominent Palestinian figure. The placard also revealed that the rocket was named after al-Makadema, making this at least the second rocket to be named after him, the late leader. Designated M90, the rocket has a range of 90 kilometers, awarding the resistance faction the possibility of targeting central areas in occupied Palestine, including Tel Aviv, from various positions in the Gaza Strip, such as the southern city of Khan Yunus. Earlier in 2012, the resistance put into service the M75, which has seen substantial use 
in every round of confrontation since then, especially in the Battle of Siaf al-Quds in May of 2021 and the ongoing Operation Al-Aqsa flood. And uh, finally, in regard to the United States, uh, a cohort of White House interns in a letter addressed to President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris urged the administration to push for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. The letter, supported by over 40 interns from the fall 2023 term working across White House and executive offices, accuses Biden of neglecting the pleas of the American people. The interns specifically mention the ongoing aggression on Gaza and describe it as a genocide of the Palestinian people. They demanded the administration to heed the voices of the American people and call for a permanent ceasefire. The letter reflects growing internal pressure on Biden regarding his stance on Israel's aggression and invasion, which has received backlash and threats of abandonment in his reelection. And with that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service It is designed to foster intelligent discussion on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to log on and have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, December 9th, uh, 2023, uh, just go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that uh, was uh, the sound of Funkadelic uh, from the album entitled Magazine. That track was entitled Super Stupid, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday afternoon, December 9th, uh, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown uh, Detroit, Michigan and the United States. And right now we're going to go to a Palestine panel uh, with electronic intifada. This was uh, laid down on the 62nd day of the IDF, uh, Israeli state, uh, backed by uh, the U.S. White House siege on uh, the people of Gaza and throughout the entire uh, region of occupied Palestine and its environs. Let's listen in to this report. Hello, and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Thursday, December 7th. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Wynn Stanley, John Elmer, and Ali Abunima. We have a very packed show today, so please stay tuned. It's day 62, and we enter the third month of Israel's genocidal attacks. Where do I even start? Uh, 350 Palestinians were killed in the last 24 hours in Gaza. As of this morning, 17,177 Palestinian men, women, and children have been killed in Gaza by the Israeli military since October 7th. More than 46,000 have been injured. However, these numbers don't include thousands of people still being reported missing under the rubble or those who have died from disease and lack of access to medical treatment under Israel's complete siege. The Israeli military has expanded its ground invasion into the southern Gaza Strip, ordering Palestinians sheltering in five United Nations schools to leave. That was yesterday. Uh, while carpet bombing entire na- neighborhoods across southern Gaza overnight and into today. The Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza evacuated most patients and staff in the Kamal Adwan Hospital in Jabalia refugee camp. The UN said the, hard, the, the hospital largely stopped functioning and ceased admitting new patients. Out of 24 hospitals in the northern Gaza Strip, only two small hospitals are still able to admit patients. Ashraf Al-Kedra, the spokesperson for the health ministry in Gaza, said that the Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital in Gaza City, quote, has lost its capacity to treat patients in the face of the large number of injuries and the wounded are bleeding to death. The United Nations World Food Program said that households in northern Gaza are, quote, experiencing alarming levels of hunger. At least 97% of households in northern Gaza have, quote, inadequate food consumption, with 9 out of 10 people going one full day and night without food. Yesterday, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced that he has invoked Article 99 of the UN Charter. This invocation means that the Security Council will hold a special session ostensibly to address Israel's attacks on Gaza, But of course, it's unclear what will come of this Security Council session since the U.S. holds veto power and can use it on Israel's behalf. 
We'll get more into all of this. We'll have a very full show uh, today, uh, including a discussion with John on reports that Israel is planning or attempting to flood the tunnel network under Gaza, as well as the gains by the Palestinian resistance against the Israeli army and much more. But first, Asa has some new reportage on the latest revelations about how Israel killed Israeli citizens on the 7th of October. Asa, please tell us more. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Nora. Since the 7th of October, a steady stream of testimonies has been flowing out of Israel, showing that a large number of the hundreds of Israelis who were killed during the Palestinian resistance assault on the military bases and settlements along the frontier with Gaza were actually killed by Israeli airstrikes, tank shelling and the occupation forces generally chaotic response. Now, you as readers of the Electronic Intifada, as well as our regular listeners and viewers, will know a lot about this story already, and we've been covering it for a while now. And a couple of weeks ago, we published this long investigative piece that I wrote uh, about all this story, and it rounded up most of the evidence that had emerged to date at that point. Now that piece was based on more than a month of intensive research which involved almost the entire EI team. When I finally came to write the piece up, it was actually hard to keep track of all the evidence that this had really happened, just because there is so much of it. But even in the two weeks since that piece was published, there's been new testimonies that have continued to emerge time and time again and the mainstream media is, for the most part, so far, ignoring it. Now, I just want to talk briefly today about my latest story, which is reporting on another example of an Israeli testimony that shows, yet again, that a large number of the civilians killed on the 7th of October were killed not by Hamas, not by Palestinians, but by Israeli forces themselves. In a Hebrew language podcast, an Israeli Air Force colonel admitted that his forces blew up Israeli homes in the settlement using drones and helicopters. The colonel's name is Nof Erez. He's a reservist, but like many reservists, it seems he was called up to active service on the 7th of October. Now, according to the Haaretz podcast host, Erez was there that day, watching events unfold live in an Air Force Command headquarters. Now, Erez's testimony backs up previous accounts in the Hebrew language media, a previous account by an anonymous Israeli helicopter pilot who stated that they shot at, quote, everything along the fence with Gaza that day. But there was something truly new in Erez's interview he confirmed that Israel invoked something called the Hannibal Directive. Now, you as our viewers and listeners will have probably heard about this before. It was named after an ancient Carthaginian general who poisoned himself rather than be captured alive. The Hannibal Directive was a military doctrine which was established in secret about 30 years ago by Israel to discourage Lebanese and Palestinian resistance fighters from capturing Israeli soldiers alive 
so that they could be used in prisoner exchanges. In 2011, the Palestinian resistance in Gaza famously exchanged the captured Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit for 1,027 Palestinian political prisoners who were being held hostage in Israeli jails, including Yahya Sinwar, who is now the leader of Hamas in Gaza. Here's a short clip of what Erez said in the Hebrew podcast. We're going to play the clip now and then I'll sum up what he said in English for our listeners who won't be able to read the subtitles. אנחנו לא יודעים אם נפגעו חטופים בשלב שהתחיל ירי של מסקרים וכטמ"מים על הגדר כשראו את המסות שנכנסות ויוצאות. נורא לקח נבלב על זה בכוונה, זאת אומרת אם הופעל אז הוא הופעל בכוונה, אם נפגעו חטופים במקרה זה משהו אחר. נועל חניבל כנראה הופעל באיזשהו שלב, כי ברגע שהבינו שיש חטיפה, אז הם מיד אומרים, חבר'ה, זה, זה חניבל. אבל חניבל שאנחנו התאמנו עליו כל ה-20 שנה האחרונות, זה רכב שיודעים מאיזה נקודה בגדר הוא נכנס, מאיזה רכב, באיזה צד הוא נוסע, ואולי אפילו על איזה ציר הוא נע. פה זה היה חניבל המוני, זה היה המון המון פתחים בגדר. Okay, thanks, Tamara. For the benefit of our listeners, here's what was said in that clip, and to emphasize it as well, I suppose. The Haaretz podcast host, Lior Kodner, asks Erez directly if the Hannibal Directive was used on the 7th of October, quote, and did it happen this time? Erez then replies, quote, we don't know if hostages were harmed at the stage when helicopters and drones began firing towards the fence, the fence with Gaza, when they saw the masses entering and exiting. The host then pressed him further and Erez then explicitly admits, quote, the Hannibal Directive was apparently applied at a certain stage, end of quote. He even explains that, quote, the Hannibal we trained for all of the last 20 years is for a vehicle we know at what point of the fence it enters, on what side it drives, and maybe even on which road it drives. But, he says, quote, this was a mass Hannibal. There were tons and tons of opening in the fence. Now, uh, this podcast episode was first reported in English by the website The Cradle, which is one of the few independent outlets that have been covering this increasing mountain of evidence, along with ourselves, of course, the Grey Zone and Mondo Weiss. To our knowledge, to my knowledge, this is the first Israeli admission uh, by a senior Air Force officer, no less, that the Hannibal Directive was indeed applied on the 7th of October and that this did happen. For two months now, the evidence has suggested that this was very much the case. The indiscriminate and massive Israeli response to the Palestinian military assault on, on bases, military bases and Gaza frontier settlements very much suggested this. The Israelis appear to prefer that Israeli civilians be killed rather than fall into Palestinian hands as captives. And now we have explicit and official Israeli confirmation that the Hannibal Doctrine was indeed applied that day. So the next question to ask is the following. How much of all this was deliberate policy? 
and how much was the result of the chaotic nature of the Israeli response to the Palestinian military assault. It has also emerged that Israel appears to be quite literally burying evidence that could answer this question. Now, this is a story from the Jerusalem Post, which reported recently that cars containing the bloodstains or ashes of Israelis who died on 7 October would be crushed, shredded, as they put it, in what the paper was said, and also in what the paper said was the first, the cards remains would be buried in a cemetery. Now, the Post provided a sort of religious pretext for all this. Nonetheless, this is a worrying development, which amounts to a state-sanctioned cover-up of what could potentially be some of the most important forensic evidence from the 7th of October. Given that the admissions of two Israeli pilots to date show that, number one, they shot at, quote, everything along the fence with Gaza that day, and number two, these new admissions that the Hannibal Directive was indeed applied, it is highly likely that many, if not most, of those cars were destroyed by Israeli drone and helicopter strikes, thus shooting or burning to death both their Israeli and Palestinian occupants alike. There is a lot that's still unclear about what really happened on the 7th of October, but one thing is for sure, we urgently need an independent international investigation to get to the full truth. Atrocity propaganda is Israel's main distraction tactic from the hideous genocide that it is carrying out right now against the civilian population of the Gaza Strip. That these alleged atrocities against Israeli civilians those that ever really happened in the first place, may have, in fact, been carried out by Israel itself, is a truth that the Israeli government is desperate to stop getting out. Thank you so much, Asa. Uh, and uh, you can go, of course, to the Electronic Intifada's website, electronicintifada.net, and read Asa's uh, recent reports. Um, thanks so much, Asa. And if you, oh, go ahead, Ali. Well, I, I don't know if we have time, Nora, for uh, any questions for Asa. Yeah, of yeah, course. Just, yeah, I just, well, thanks, Asa. I mean, it's, as you said, Asa, more and more evidence is coming out all the time. I have two questions for you. One is, do you see this starting to have an impact on mainstream discourse? Um, I see Israel, at least in a lot, a lot of their spokespeople on social media that we, we look at, are complaining that Israel is not being believed. And this includes about, in general, what happened on October 7th and what we talked about last time, the, the recent claim of mass rapes. They're, they're putting out these desperate-sounding posts on social media saying, now do you believe us? Now, do you believe us? They did the same thing with uh, Shifa Hospital after they announced, first of all, oh, we're going to find this big command center. And then they didn't. And they found some basement room with tiled walls. And they said, now, do you believe us? And yet, at the same time, they're not agreeing to or calling for any international investigation or any independent investigation. I mean, is, is it just as simple as, they know that this is 
not credible and they don't want anyone to come and check it out? What do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I I don't really see any sign that this is breaking through to the mainstream yet, except on the margins. I mean, I think the only um, signs we've seen of that so far are very small, which was, you know, we mentioned in your segment the other day about um, the mass rape fabrication that, um, you know, Owen Jones's video, and uh, he mentions this, you know, he mentioned some of the, friend, the so-called friendly fire incidents, um, Yasmin Porat and so forth. He mentioned them in passing in that video, but only to sort of dismiss them as a kind of conspiracy theory, as, as Haaretz um, in English has stated. Um, and I mean, so, yeah, I don't see it breaking through at the moment, but we did see this week there was... Um, a segment on CNN which reported, I mean, I think we might talk about this later in the stream if we have time, about um, Israeli prisoners who'd been released from Gaza um, who were talking about how they were in constant fear of being bombed by Israel while they were in Gaza. Um, and this was very briefly covered on CNN. Um, and, you know, kind of in passing again, um, I think, you know, they don't want an international investigation. And I mean, I suppose every time these wars happen, these genocidal wars happen against the Gaza Strip, um, there does tend to be calls for international investigations by uh, all, all kinds of uh, liberals, usually, and human rights groups. And I suppose our normal response to that is, well, well, personally, I always feel like we don't need an international investigation to know what Israel's doing. But in this case, I think we do because um, because of the nature of, of what happened and how a lot of it is so unclear. And um, and uh, yeah, I mean, Israel does its best to kind of, you know, there's the whole experience of the, the Goldstone report where um he you know the the international investigator who was a human rights lawyer and so forth from south africa who later kind of partially recanted his investigation which said that israel had committed war crimes and so forth um and israel always does its best to kind of stop these things happening but i think in this case they really really don't want an investigation to happen and we can see them kind of in real time covering up the evidence of it as I mentioned, there's also how I, one of the other things I've mentioned in my articles is how um, some of the dead have been buried without being identified. Um, and your article, Ali, that um, the Israelis, the Israeli spokesperson Mark Regev has um, admitted that um, 200 of the dead that they had initially thought were um, Israelis were in fact Palestinian fighters. So it just shows the indiscriminate nature of all of this. And they're literally bearing the evidence. I mean, there's uh, all those hundreds of uh, incinerated cars uh, that were parked at the Nova Music Festival that uh, the Israeli government said that they're going to be burying under the sand as some sort of like uh, like art installation tribute or something. I mean, but, but of course we all know why <laughs> they're burying these cars that couldn't have been incinerated by um, a couple of AK-47s and an RPG. So, 
And it's worth noting that uh, when it came to Israel's claims about the hospitals being used uh, as command centers and for weapons storage, that Hamas had very clearly and repeatedly called for an international investigation, and they'd called on the, right. the yeah. International Red Cross to bring uh, international investigators to go to all the hospitals in Gaza and investigate the Israeli claims. So it's very clear that one side has something to hide. Indeed. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Asa. Um, and of course, uh, we'll be uncovering uh, all sorts of new revelations as time goes on. Um, in a few minutes, we're going to be joined by our contributors, Sawar Al-Ejla and Ahmed Asamak. But first, we want to show two short videos by our contributor, Mohammed Assad, in Gaza that he made for us. إلى قطاع غزة في اليوم الأول من الهدنة والتي ستدخل هي ضئيلة جدا جدا لا تكفي لحي حتى تكون لقطاع غزة 2 مليون ثلاثة من عشرة إنسان في القطاع لذلك الاحتياج كبير جدا هؤلاء يصفون من الفجر وربما لن يجنوا غاز في هذا المكان أصحاب هذه المحطة يقولون أنهم لم يصلهم أي كمية من الغازات لأن الكميات التي دخلت ضئيلة جدا 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 ولا تكفي لكل المحطات في قطاع غزة طبعا احنا بنضطر نعمل اكل على الحطب لانه كميات الغاز اللي دخلت قطاع غزة في خلال فترة الهدنة هي كميات ضئيلة جدا ومش كل كان او اتيحت له الفرصة انه يحصل على كميات من غاز الطهي حتى البنزين نفس الشيء بالنسبة لحركة التنقل طبعا هذا غدايا اليوم فندورة على الحطب بعد يوم طويل عمل متعب شاق وكمان زديت الفول هذه أصدقاء اللي فقدتهم بالعشرات أصدقاء وأقارب ويمكن إحنا ما زعلنا عليهم مش عشان قلوبنا قاسية لا عشان قدرتنا الذهنية لسه ما سوعبت إنه إحنا فقدنا هذا الكم من الناس اللي كانوا حوالينا وقريبين علينا ولسه العقل مشغول بتأمين العائلة وكيف حتى أنا بدي أتحرك وأوثق هاي الحرب على غزة والصواريخ اللي بتنزل كل يوم والاستهدافات بكرة بستنتهي الحرب ونروح على غزة ونجلس على أطلال مدينتنا المضمرة وقتها نتذكر أصدقائنا وأقاربنا اللي عاشوا معنا الحياة بحلوها ومرها وقتها نتذكرهم وهنبكي عليهم Those were two videos uh, sent to us, made for us by Mohammed Assad in Gaza, and we apologize that um, for our listeners who um, don't speak Arabic, um, that uh, we will have, I mean, those videos are on uh, our Instagram, and uh, they do have English subtitles, so you can watch those. Um, on uh, yeah, when when you get a chance. Um, but we do want to bring in our contributor Sawar Al Ejla. Uh, Sawar is um, she wrote a piece for us uh, asking why many international medical professionals and institutions who spoke out about Ukraine are remaining silent about Palestine. Sawar, thank you so much for joining us again on the live stream. Thank you for having me. Hi, Sawar. Hi. Hi. 
Um, so first off, uh, you know, you're a physician. Uh, you worked in uh, Gaza hospitals. Um, can you give us a sense of what your colleagues uh, are facing right now and, and what, um, what are the most uh, pressing concerns that people in the medical field have uh, for, for people in Gaza? Okay, um, first of all, the, the healthcare system in Gaza now are shuttered, completely shuttered, and it turns all of it with um, the killing of uh, healthcare workers, like right till now, 277 has been killed, and 42 have been kidnapped, and with um, the lack of medical supplies and the overwhelming numbers of wounded, and previously the the patients Six patients, other than the wanted, it's consuming the healthcare system a lot. Of course, with uh, no supplies to fit, that's why um, make like um, a huge burden on uh, physicians and colleagues in Gaza to deal with. And they are now like just as first aid providers, if they could do it in safe area with current. With current, uh, with um, recurrent and constant bombardment of uh, facilities and healthcare centers. And you uh, wrote this piece for us um, last week. It's called uh, "Why Were West Doctors Outraged About Ukraine But Silent About Gaza?" Um, and you go through a number of examples, um, including. Uh, uh, you know, uh, healthcare associations, medical associations here in the United States. Um, there is one example, uh, you, you report that a specialist in the UCLA healthcare system openly supported the killing and collective punishment of Palestinians in Gaza, whom he called inbred. Um, and you write, such dehumanizing comments would raise, would raise serious doubts about any individual's ability to provide unbiased care, and it calls into question a doctor's fundamental capacity to treat fellow humans with dignity. Can you give us a sense of uh, your analysis here and, and what is happening inside uh, medical associations and medical communities here in the West that still gives Israel this green light for genocide um, and for attacks on healthcare workers and patients. Okay, the medical community response can be viewed as like at three levels: the physicians themselves, and the journals, and the associations or uh, institutions. All of these, like together, make like it can, they can like focus or uh, encourage the genocide happening in Gaza, especially focusing on healthcare facilities, uh, uh, workers, and patients. So when uh, like physicians, like Western physicians or church, like most doctors in all around the world, like trust the medical journals and institutions with their um, uh, publications. So when they are, uh, when such uh, journals and institutions who are the most trusted sources for the doctors change the picture and uh, and display it in like in like when someone when one of these displayed uh, it as um, a questions of doubt and how like doctors should have um, a degree in medical or political uh, science so they can uh, say if the attacks on healthcare system are uh, are, uh, are you know it's good or not or uh, it should happen or not 
So they are making doubts about if uh, killing patients and doctors is, uh, can be supported or not. Uh, so this kind of bias and, uh, you know, uh, like when we say these biased and uh, one-sided journals and institutions controlling the views of many doctors all around the world and uh, guiding them towards supporting the genocide of Gaza is really concerning and um, like raise the, uh, the question about their credibility and how uh, we should take their publications and questions of why, uh, in questions of how we take it or not, or their ethical evaluation of um, uh, the publications that they publish, like articles or research, um, take it. And you also talk about the, the kind of language that uh, these institutions and also uh, international organizations like the World Health Organization and the Red Cross have been using in their official statements, um, you know, employing the passive voice, not even mentioning who did the killing, uh, Israel, of course. Um, and, and you contrast that with um, the kind of statements that were put out um, uh, you know, in, in support of Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about that and how language is being employed here as well? Um, they are um, mainly using the passive voice to refer, or if they wanted to refer to the the, the their stuff who have been killed, like Dima Al Haj, the WHO uh, worker, and if they want, they say died. So the, their use of uh, such terminology means that they don't want to condemn Israel uh, for their um, crimes and against to what they do in Ukraine. For example, uh, the American, the American Surgical College have condemned directly the Russian uh, military for their actions in Ukraine. So when you are afraid or don't want to refer such things, when Israel do it, either you support it or you are afraid of them. Uh, Sawar, um, can you talk a little bit more about um, what physicians right now are demanding from the so-called international community and organizations that purport to protect um, and, and support uh, healthcare uh, all over the world? Um, what are physicians in Gaza, your colleagues, uh, your friends demanding, and and uh, and what are they not getting right now? Uh, of course, ceasefire now. You know they they need immediate ceasefire because they can't take anymore, and everything is collapsing. And the second thing is not censoring their voices, because you know uh, as a response of the JAMA publications where they wrote uh, about. Uh, uh, about the genocide and and the, the attacks on hospitals, if it's a question or not. Uh, Dr. Seidser and Matt, uh, Dr. Matt Gilbert has written a piece as a response to a letter to the editor to respond to such um, articles. And they have fought, uh, they have fought like civilly for um, not for writing only Palestine as a relation for Dr. Seid 
they wanted to write it as Middle East, Spain, King Gaza, and refused to address Palestine as Palestine or at least occupy Palestinian territories. And uh, Palestinians <clears throat> must fight for like publications, uh, even if it was neutral, not addressing Israel as um, like just talking about the healthcare situation and humanitarian crisis. Uh, they they have to fight for uh, these publications, and either it's either declined or get a heavy editing. Heavy editing. And the third thing is that doctors like Quant they, you know, uh, um, a continuous supply of everything, even doctors, hospitals, um, uh, field hospitals, um, medications, uh, tools, everything. And uh, as we have been reporting, um, some of your colleagues, uh, physicians in Gaza, including the head of Al-Shifa Hospital, uh, Muhammad Abu Salmiya, have been uh, abducted, arrested, um, and, um, and reports are that they are being interrogated and tortured by Israeli military forces. Um, can you talk about what is happening to the physicians and why Israel would be doing this against uh, medical professionals? Um, we have tracked till now 42 kidnapped or arrested doctors, Israel uh, abducted, uh, not doctors, healthcare workers, and some of them have been released. And they're on uh, why they are arrested, arrest doctors now, because, you know, uh, the huge propaganda from since 7th October about hospitals and doctors being collaborators or being based, uh, military base for Hamas. And uh, so now Israel uh, arrested them like because they are doctors and maybe they have information about uh, Hamas and other stuff, but they do know they, they are just civilians, doctors who know that, but just a kind of support to their propaganda. If, if I can... Uh... Thank you, Siwar, and thank you for your article for raising that issue because it's maddening to see the hypocrisy like everyone, every organization, every institution that spoke out about Ukraine but has remained silent about Gaza. It's not just in the medical field, it's in the cultural field, in the scientific field, in academia and so on. Uh, I just want to give an update regarding uh, Dr. Mohammed Abu Salmiya, who we talked about recently. He's one of the medical personnel who have been detained. He's the director of Al-Shifa Hospital, and he was abducted uh, more than two weeks ago in Gaza. And uh, according to the Jerusalem Post, uh, reporting on two days ago, he is being investigated the headline is Shifa Hospital Director Criminally Probed Under Emergency War Rules. And uh, the Jerusalem Post says that uh, Muhammad Abu Salmiya recently had a hearing before an unidentified Israeli civilian magistrate court via video conference in which his detention was extended. He's being criminally probed by the Shin Bet, that's Israel's secret police and torture agency uh, under what the Jerusalem Post calls current war emergency regulations relating to Hamas and other terrorists connected to the war. And it says 
as part of those regulations, Abu Salmiya is being prevented from meeting with a lawyer. So that's, it's just incredible that uh, this is happening with no international outcry uh, and that Israel can treat doctors, senior doctors, uh, as if they are terrorists with nobody even knowing their name. I mean, I don't know beyond those who closely follow what's happening in, in Gaza, how many people even know the name of Dr. Abu Salmiya. Yeah, indeed. Um, Suwar, can you give us a little bit more information on the reports that keep coming out about uh, the spread of infectious diseases, um, you know, treatable injuries that are not being treated because there are no supplies left and, uh, you know, emergency rooms are basically just first aid stations at this point. Um, Can you talk a little bit about... um, this this ongoing medical catastrophe that uh, that that we're all witnessing in Gaza. Okay, um, I have contact with Dr. Um, Doan. She is a family physician at uh, primary healthcare, and now volunteering in in one of them. Like she said, she received like daily 600 uh, patients. Most of them have. Uh, respiratory infections and uh, gastroenteritis, uh, as well as dermatologic uh, skin infections. These are, of course, results from uh, lack of clean water, uh, no food, of course, and um, uh, the, it's a crowded, not clean areas, especially in, honor, in the schools, in honor of schools and shelters. And um, recently, my cousin, Mahlam, has passed away as a result of that. She, uh, she, she, her, her body is fragile. She can't tolerate like um, uh, such circumstances, such environments with uh, no clean water and uh, no good food. She was admitted to the hospital one month ago, and um, uh, there was suspect. They, doctors there suspected um, Crohn's disease, which is treatable disease, and if it was, we couldn't like confirm it the diagnosis, but if it was confirmed. Uh, we can like um, take care of it as it's not treatable disease but controls. But Hram passed away because uh, mainly maybe because of lack of um, medical care with overwhelming uh, like um, number of patients and wanted and of course delayed uh, uh, like diagnostic tools which is not available right now especially CT and other supporting. So. Hlam is one case of thousands of cases who uh, die daily either f- from simple disease that would be easily treated on normal days, like uh, asthmatic patients who need just oxygen, not available, of course, who died maybe because at their houses because they can't access treatment and, uh, and hospitals. Uh, diabetic patients who are now can't find the medications and uh, suffer from complications, which is life-threatening, of course. Hypertension, hypertension and hypertensive emergencies can be treated easily at normal circumstances, but now no medications, no supplies. These patients are now dying silently and, of course, are not count on, counted on 
the uh, among the uh, among those who have killed by direct pumping and um, rockets from Israel. We're so sorry to hear about your cousin uh, Ahlam. I'm so I'm so sorry. I can't imagine uh, what you and your family are going through. Um, I mean, just you know, like the you know we hear so much about you know the the numbers and the statistics and you know 17,000 killed so far, thousands more under the rubble, 46,000 injured. But but there are no statistics yet on the number of people who have secondary injuries uh, or are dying of secondary causes, you know, not, not directly caused by Israeli bombing, but because of the collapse of the medical system and no food and no water and no sanitation. Um, and this is part of the, 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 the genocide that Israel is carrying out. Um, it is deliberate and it is entirely man-made. Uh, this is an Israeli project of ethnic cleansing. Um, so what, what um i mean what like have you ever seen something this catastrophic in your life no i've never seen like even if um healthcare system basically was um overstretched in gaza they have been something uh like the the trucks that even uh bus through the could be held and doctors use it like wisely let's say, but these collapsive systems have never seen, and, um, you know, everything is lacking, everything, even food, you know, food. We have, I, I haven't witnessed ever, like, this, this kind of food lack. Like, water, and, and during the wars, we know, I know, I experienced, like, water, but, you know, food, it's, it's more than, it's maddening, just maddening how, like, such basic things, are not affordable, are not there, and people die because of this. Like, we are in 2023, and people are still dying of starvation, still dying, still not finding water. So. No, it's it's unbelievable. Um, uh, yeah, um, what can we say? Um, how are you how are you doing how are you you know you're in canada many thousands of miles away um you have a job uh doing research medical research um how are how are you able to function these days i would say like Ahlam was not the only one maybe our loss is like uh, not that much like compared to other people who lost like hundreds of their families and I pray that it will be the last uh, loss so and we can have ceasefire so soon and we can like hold up ourselves again and um, together to have time to grieve and bury our kids and our dead. So. Amazing. Um, Ali, did you have a, a question for Siwar? Uh, I, I guess I, I'd like to know, Siwar, if you're still able to stay in touch with people in Gaza. Are you able to stay connected with your family, with your colleagues, with your friends? It's getting more difficult for us, and I just wanted to know if you're getting any updates. Like three days ago, I, uh, I, the, last, the last contact was three days ago, 
but I send like mass messaging to them. So anytime any one of them could uh, like connect to internet, they can like uh, send uh, respond to me and uh, reassure me about their uh, their circumstances and. Um, as for calls, sometimes it's, yeah, there is networks and I can, like, talk to them. And sometimes, no. Even people in Gaza don't know about each other. You know, my father and uh, brothers are in Shijayim now. And uh, their family are in uh, school shelters. So they don't know about those in Gaza. And I don't know about both. So, <laughs> funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult. It's incredibly difficult. That's what, that's, I mean, I think we've heard it time and again, but it can't be stressed enough. Obviously, people in Gaza are going through an unbelievably horrific, stressful, devastating time. But we keep in our thoughts, everyone, including Yusiwar, who is outside Gaza, who has family there, and just the desperate worry and concern all the time, 24 hours a day is something that I'm sure is weighing very, very heavily. And uh, we keep you in our thoughts and we hope that you will be reunited with your family soon uh, in much better circumstances. Thank you, Thank you so much, Sawar. Um, and um, we really again appreciate all the work that you do and all of these stories that you've been contributing to the electronic intifada they are just incredibly valuable um and, and we really are grateful for your work thank you so much Sawar. thank you Sue. this is the electronic intifada live stream for thursday december 7th um before we go to ahmed Asimak in a few minutes ali i know we wanted to talk a little bit about our friends and colleagues in gaza right now and also um some news reports about master mass arrests um so yeah you say yes uh nora i just wanted to to say i know that many people are concerned about our friends and colleagues in gaza i'm getting questions from people about Rifat Al-Ar'ir, who we've had on the show many times and who does such important work, and uh, our friend Ahmed Aburtema. And unfortunately, we haven't heard from them for several days. Uh, and that's true with a number of people in Gaza. I will say that they were both very clear with us that access to the internet is now extremely difficult. Mobile phone networks are down. And Another one of our uh, colleagues in Gaza, Ahmed Dremli, uh, did manage to get a message to me yesterday, and he explained that you don't have internet the vast majority of the time, or it's not safe to go out and look for it. But then even if you do get internet, the other problem is that it is so difficult for anyone to charge their devices. So... In, in one sense, that's comforting because we, 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 we hope that the silence is just because of the difficulty of connecting and not something worse. But on the other hand, it is extremely worrying that we're not hearing from our friends and colleagues. And it's in that context that uh, the reports that are coming out of Gaza now of mass arrests in the north of Gaza and 
some of the human rights activists have have circulated photos showing mass roundups of uh, Palestinian men, civilians, in the north of Gaza that Israel is uh, binding, uh, stripping of their clothes. Uh, I'm going to show you this uh, photo. I'm going to drop this in the in the in our chat here and Tamara the ever brilliant Tamara Nassar behind the scenes can hopefully display this tweet which is published by the Euro Mediterranean Human Rights Group and it shows men bound and gagged a large number of men bound and gagged who were taken from UNRWA shelters and there is also a fear some some uh, people, including uh, Rami Abdu of the Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Group. Rami is a longtime human rights defender. I actually met him in Gaza 10 years ago. He's now uh, in uh, Istanbul. But, of course, his organization maintains contact with a lot of people in Gaza. And he's raising the possibility that there may well be mass executions as part of this genocide uh, and these images and there are others similar to them of men being rounded up and put in trucks certainly uh, raise in my mind they remind me of the pictures or the 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 events that happened in Srebrenica in Bosnia uh, in the 1990s where there was a genocide and of course with no one there to be able to see what's happening. Really, anything can happen. So it's, it's extremely, extremely worrying. And, and so this is just to say that we are constantly trying to stay connected with our friends and colleagues in Gaza. I'm happy to say we are in touch with some of them. And when there's any significant news, we will report it and let you know. But... Uh, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's asking about Rahmat, Rifat and Ahmed Aburtema and others. We're making constant efforts to try and stay connected with them. Yeah, yeah, it is extremely worrying. Um, for the next 10 minutes, uh, I wanted to get John's analysis of Um, what we're seeing in terms of the ground operations, especially in the south of the Gaza Strip, where, you know, Israel has told people to evacuate, um, you know, uh, saying that it's for their safety and then invading the south, besieging it and carpet bombing. Um, And, and, you know, and then we'll take a break and we'll we'll have uh, our contributor, Ahmed Asamak, join us and then come back for more analysis. But but first, uh, just Briefly, John, what can you tell us about the nature of the ground invasion, especially what's going on in the south? Yeah, Israel's moved its focus to the south after the uh, humanitarian uh, prisoner exchange and pause, and the level of fighting is intense right now in the south. Um, It's intense all over the Gaza Strip. Of course, the airstrikes underpin everything that's happening. Um, Nowhere safe for anybody. Um, the war in the north continues, um, but really the focus right now for Israel is on the south. And I think that there's, um, you know, the necessity for Israel to have some sort of, um, you know, spectacle of, of victory or um, accomplishment, something they can show for 
um, what they've done um, in the humanitarian realm that we've been talking about, the, the devastation and horror, um, to what end? Um, and so I think Khan Yunus for them is was a necessary target. It's the home of Mohammed Daef, the head of the Qassam Brigades, and um, Yahya Sinwar, who's the head of um, Hamas's Politburo, but who is also a founding member of the Qassam Brigades. Um, so I think there's the propaganda value to um, some of this. I mean, we saw Netanyahu yesterday say that they had encircled the house of Yahya Sinwar. Um, and then everybody in the media in the West repeated it. I heard it on the BBC and CBC here in Canada. Um, there's no evidence of that. Yeah, as, point. as though Yahya Sinwar would be just waiting for them in his living room. Um, I, well, well, Sinwar is actually an interesting guy because he last time they destroyed his house, he took a great photo. I guess that was last year's war, and he took a photo sitting in his in his chair with a big smile on his face. Not a guy you see smiling a lot. Um, and then after he gave that speech at the stadium at the end of the war, he said he was going to walk home. So if Israel wanted to assassinate him, that uh, he would be walking for the next 45 minutes to his house, and he did that. Um, so. I think this is, um, you know, part of the um, the disconnect between what's going on in the on the ground and the sort of propaganda war, where you just say, you know, we're, we're trying to get the, you know, we're trying to kill the leader, as if that's, um, um, you know, as if that would justify this war um, that has targeted civilians. And you can see by that picture, thanks, Tamara. You can see by that picture, he doesn't care what you do to his house. Um, you know, this is um, a war for liberation, and nobody has been more clear about that articulation than Yahya Sinwar, that um, Palestinians aren't going to just be silent um, in the face of their genocide, which before October 7th was slow and steady, and of course since October 7th has been accelerated and very public, um, but it's the same dynamic, and um, these kind of... Um, shows of, you know, these kind of spectacles, they don't have any impact on the ground. They don't have any impact of the war that they're actually fighting. Um, people don't take it seriously. And Yahya Sinwar has given lots of opportunities to prove that he does not care about this kind of, um, you know, encircling his house. Although it's worth noting that part of being a resistance leader in Palestine is expecting that um, your family will be killed um, and your extended family will be killed, um, but not you. You'll, your, your home will be targeted with the civilians inside it. Um, so this idea that they're encircling his house as if there's a tunnel under there that, that he's just hanging out in, it's just propaganda. Um, when meanwhile, um, the, the, the ferocity of the armed struggle that's happening in the South, which makes sense, um, is, is the focus right now for the resistance. Um, although the resistance is all over um, the North as well, of course, um, it's focused in the South. And you can see by their reports that the fighting is fierce in Khan Yunus uh, right now. Um, and Kassam Brigades are, are basically saying and have been saying for about a week now um, that they're taking out an armored vehicle per hour. Um, essentially in this fight. And so Israel had some time during the humanitarian, during the ceasefire, um, during the pause, I mean, it's weird to call it a ceasefire, but during the um, the prisoner exchange, um, 
you know, both sides needed that, and but Israel needed it in particular um, to, you know, recoup their um, damaged vehicles to fix their field uh, vehicles um, and that kind of, of um, um, thing to prepare it for the fight in the south, which um, is being set up at this point um, in the same language that Israel said in the north. They've said Khan Yunus is the, you know, the number two um, Qassam battalion um, to be targeted after pre presumably Shajaiya and Jabalia, which is still fighting fiercely um, now 60 plus days um, on into the war. So there's certain things that Israel has to accomplish um, before they can wind up um, their war with some kind of achievements. And so Khan Yunus is one of those. And, and of course, it's just, as Suar said, it, it's just brutal what's happening. Israel, of course, we covered for the previous 60 days, told everybody to go south. So the, Israel pushed everybody into this area um, that they're now attacking, and they don't allow people to go back north. Um, to their homes, so people aren't able to flee in the other direction um, back to the north. So everybody is cramped in this tiny corner of the already tiny um, and encircled Gaza Strip with no way out, um, nowhere is safe. I mean, we can see footage because people have their camera, their phones in these UN schools, and we can see the strikes, airstrikes all around these schools, and the ground forces ha have just begun. Um, so this part of the war has really just begun, and I, I, I think I think we all are um, afraid of what just what that means um, to fight a war to 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 direct your army to this tiny uh, parcel of land um, that's just crowded with so many people, and it's just the like the algorithm of of massacres where people started with their families. Um, and moved, and so they started at 10, and then they went to another uh, family member, and they became 20, and then 20 to the next, to 40. Um, and that's why we're seeing these brutal massacres now, four generations of families, multiple families in the same buildings. And Israel's dropping these buildings um, on top of entire families that are trying to, um, that were, uh, went to the south on orders, um, life and death orders, um, and are now being attacked um, where they said the safe zones were. So, um, you know, we'll talk more later in the show about the accomplishments of the resistance, but I think just um, from the humanitarian perspective, um, this is setting up to be a disaster, and we've talked about it before. Is like, what, what is the number that, uh, that, that Israel's allowed to massacre um, in, a, in a tantrum um, to make up for October 7th when they're, uh, Gaza division was crushed and taken underground in Gaza. Yeah. Um, and uh, after we uh, hear from our friend Ahmed Asamak, we're going to come back to you, John, uh, uh, to talk specifically about the gains of the Palestinian resistance groups. Um, and we're also going to be uh, watching some uh, j jelly beans, um, <laughs> calling them. Um, so, um, so, so please stick around. Um, but for just uh, the next few minutes, if you could talk about these, uh, allegations that, um, Israel is trying to flood the tunnel network under Gaza with seawater. We saw yesterday some images being passed around on social media of, uh, 
you know, a group of Israeli soldiers um, with what looked like a, a giant hose or pipe um, connected to the beach, you know, the, the feed at the beach, um, you know, ostensibly uh, being fed into some tunnel. I mean, it, it, it didn't look very um, engineering, you know, like very structurally engineered, but uh, but this is what we're seeing on social media. Talk about the veracity of these claims and um, and what your analysis is of that. Right. So Israel is saying that essentially they've got these five pumps on the beach north of the Shati camp um, on the northwest edge of Gaza. And they have these pumps that they're attempting. They're going to flood the tunnels with seawater, um, which is just I know I, I think we've talked about this previously um, on these live streams. And we, I know we talked about um, the attempt to gas them. Um, a lot of this shows, I, I think, more than whether it can be done, it shows that Israel um, is really searching for any alternative besides actually fighting in these tunnels. So the first thing to note, of course, which the captives who were released and who met with Netanyahu um, the other day mentioned, um, Israel's people are all in these tunnels. Um, so that's first and foremost. The, the captives who met with Netanyahu I guess rightfully so, freaked out about this plan because if it were to work, um, the result would be to kill all of their soldiers, more than 100 um, captives that are still held in Gaza. Um, So right away, it's already a suspect idea because were it to work, um, I'm not sure that that would be something that Israel would be, uh, would be advantageous for Israel. But Um, Let's just really talk about the tunnels. There's 1,300 of them, according to the Israelis. There's 500 kilometers of them. Um, It would take millions of cubic meters to pump through these uh, pumps. So even if it did work, um, it presumes that you have months to carry out this operation. It presumes that Israel knows where the tunnels are in the first place, which we know is not true. Um, They don't know the difference between an offensive uh, tunnel a defensive tunnel, a logistics tunnel, um, and none of us do, uh, for the record, although a few Israelis now do. They know better than anybody, and nobody else really knows. Um, so there's a lot in that Wall Street Journal article that was that we just showed there. Um, to be fair to the experts in that article, they all said the same thing. We don't know. We've never, we've never dealt with something like this. Um, historically, there's been nothing on this scale. It's a massive engineering project um, for people in Gaza, and any historical example of um, tunnels has enough differences, um, distinctions that would make them that make those historical examples not as relevant. Like the Vietnamese, the Americans tried to flood tunnels in Viet in Vietnam. The Vietnamese tunnels weren't as deep as these tunnels in Gaza. They weren't as well um, the concrete. Um, sided like the we know that they are in Gaza. We've seen documentaries from inside the tunnels that show completely um, uh, in, encased concrete um, tunnels, um, not just the ones that we see on these videos that the Israelis have showed that show sort of prefab concrete. Um, we've seen tunnels that are completely encased. Um, so it's not clear um, that that's even possible for Israel to do. It also presumes that the Palestinians themselves haven't already thought of this, which is a massive engineering accomplishment to dig these tunnels. 
And the most important engineering aspect of the tunnels um, for people who are familiar with Gaza and its, um, uh, you know, and its sandy and its sandy soil is that over the years they have collapsed. So um, the Palestinians are very well aware of what makes the tunnels collapse. And so um, pumping the tunnels is part of the apparatus of the engineering of the tunnels. Furthermore, as we know from Israel, from the tunnel that they accidentally found that was 70 meters deep, um, that, that's as much as 50 meters below the water table. Um, so it already presumes that you're pumping below the water table. Um, but really, we're getting into a territory that we just don't, we just don't know the answer. It presumes, um, for one thing, that the tunnels are all connected. It presumes that your entrance at Shati camp um, somehow connects to the entire system and that you could then spend months filling up the entire system sort of like a cartoon. Um, but the devastation that comes from it is well known. If you pump salt water into the aquifer, you're going to make Gaza essentially unlivable. And I think Ali talked on the show before about um, a paper he wrote about the aquifer. It's already a very dangerous situation for that aquifer um, under significant stress that I can remember when I lived in Gaza, um, the United Nations was saying that Gaza was going to be unlivable by 2020, in part because of the collapse of the water table and the inability um, to keep up with desalinization um, uh, imperatives that come from um, from having the sea be right beside you, which is again, um, you know, we don't we don't know how um, the sea would impact these. Will it collapse the surface layer? Um, does it create um, instability throughout the entire Gaza Strip through the rebuilding process? We don't know the answer to any of these questions, and the Israelis don't either, which is why they didn't begin by saying we're going to flood the tunnels because their own experts don't believe that um, flooding the tunnels will work because of the size, because they don't know, the Israelis don't know if the tunnel network is even connected. It's possible they go in and they find an offensive tunnel in Shati and they pump and take photos of it and have a spectacle of uh, flooding the tunnels because they can't get out of this war without saying they dealt with the tunnels because uh, unlike before October 6th, October uh, October 6th and before, nobody, a lot of people in the world didn't know there was a massive underground tunnel network in the Gaza Strip. Um, but everybody knows now. So there's no pretense that Israel can withdraw from Gaza in any kind of, um, you know, pretense of victory without saying that they somehow dealt with the tunnels. And so that's, I think, what we're dealing with more here, like a psychological operation, um, a propaganda victory. Um, and... And John, I, I really do think there's a lot to that because the image that uh, the tweet we showed earlier showing that photo on the beach of them supposedly pumping seawater into holes, right, that one, that is posted by Aviva Klompas, who there's no reason people should recognize that name, but she is a former, uh, I think her official bio is, that she's a former speechwriter at the UN, at the, Israel's mission at the United Nations. But she seems to be a, a conduit for official propaganda. In other words, 
even though she doesn't have a formal role now, she seems to be, she and a couple of other accounts I've noticed seem to get these propaganda images passed to them from Israeli authorities. And then they put it out as if they're just sort of journalists or civilians or whatever it is to try to remove the finger, the official fingerprints from this propaganda. So I think the fact that this is being shared by uh, an account like this is really more about giving the image of victory because if you've pumped, you know, they're pumping seawater. I don't know if it's it's possible to zoom in further, but it's like they're pumping seawater into the beach, into the sandy beach. Is that what they're doing? I mean, if you've ever dumped water into sandy soil you know that that water just dissipates down into the into the sandy soil or to the aquifer so i don't even know the idea that they have there at the end of that hose an entrance that leads them to the whole tunnel network is absolutely ridiculous and that you could just flood a sandy beach and that that's somehow going to to help you so to me, this really looks like a, a psyop or propaganda for international consumption and possibly for, for Israeli domestic consumption. And now I'm just noticing all the Israeli soldiers over there uh, by the, the shore. I don't know what they're doing, if they're just taking a walk on the beach. Or, I had the same thought just or, now. <laughs> yeah. or, or what? But it's the, a logistical nightmare what's happening here. This cannot be a month-long and, and, and that's the other thing. I mean, they're posting this photo. This does not show how much water. Look at that little hose they've got there. I mean, it's big for a hose. But how much water would you have to pump? And how long would it take to make any significant difference, especially if you're pumping it into sand, where it's just going to drain back towards the sea? So... If this is what they're trying to sell to people, it's not it's not doing the trick. But you can see, Alia, that they've come out of this um, prisoner exchange ceasefire with a whole new it's like they got their focus group fired up during the seven day break. And they've come back to answer the sort of questions um, that people had, like, how can you say you're winning if you haven't touched a tunnel and you're too scared to go down a tunnel? You won't even go into a tunnel under Shifa where you said your people are. And the, there was no booby traps, um, and, you know, and all these other tunnels that they say that they're shutting down. So they say they've, they've closed 500 tunnels. Um, what's the connection between closing those tunnels and where your people are? The presumption is that you've closed off the exits to the tunnels on the one side of their propaganda they're saying we're closing off all of these entrances and then on the other side of their propaganda they're saying that they're going to flood the tunnels to the top where's their where are their people going to go um and it's like they they rolled this story out in like what is it the seventh i think that wall street journal story um you know was from the fifth sixth or seventh of of december they've been in that area north of shati along the beach um, for weeks. So they could have been four weeks into their brilliant engineering project to pump water into the Gaza tunnels. Um, but that wasn't on their radar for the first half of the war. And then they come out of their, their ceasefire um, pause 
and they have a completely different push on their propaganda. Now they're dealing with the tunnels. Now they're dealing with Sinwar. Um, you know, now they're talking about their own soldiers because um, they previously, as we've talked about, didn't talk about what their soldiers were doing. There was no stories of, of like heroic soldiers. Well, they came out of the pause and now they're talking about their soldiers fighting close quarters combat, um, associating some of the deaths even with fighting, uh, fierce fighting, close quarters that they're winning. Um, so it almost looks like during the pause, they saw their focus groups and their focus groups said, you have to deal with the leadership, you have to deal with the tunnels, you have to show us to be heroes because you're hiding your deaths. Um, and part of hiding your deaths is that you're taking away from your own people um, any of spectacles of, of victory. And like, I don't want to predict, well be, but the uh, day uh, after the war, Kassam is going to have a parade where there's tens of thousands of fighters. So how is Israel going to have these, these, this victory after this genocide that they've carried out when they hit their magic number for Blinken, which, what is it, 50,000 people? You get to kill 50,000 people but show no military victories for four divisions of your army being deployed inside the Gaza Strip, um, a war that you've been planning for for decades. Um, I think a lot of this is it, it's a, it's psyops. It's it's a lot of it is is propaganda. And I think uh, that that also relates to the photos we looked at earlier of these civilian men taken from UN shelters. These horrifying images uh, is to create an image of because of course Israel is going to claim and is going to market these photos to to its own people that these are Hamas militants who've either been captured or surrendered, and that is not the case at all. No, they're uh, already saying that. They're saying they got them from tunnels, which is just patently false. It's a lie, because they wouldn't have come out of the tunnels, and, and we know the Israelis aren't going in, and there's nowhere uh, that uh, you're going to get that many people, that many fighters, gathering together in one place in a combat zone. These are very small cells that move around very furtively, as we're going to see when we look at uh, some more of the, the videos later. And, and we know that these are people who are being abducted from, from UN shelters or when people are trying to move south. And, but again, this is about creating a spectacle by which Israel can claim that it is uh, winning, that it's dominating, that it's teaching those barbarians, those savages a lesson uh, by stripping them down, by blindfolding them, by humiliating them in this manner. But I don't know that it has that effect, except perhaps with the Israeli public. I think a lot, a lot of people look at this and they just see more images of brutal domination and horror. I, I don't know that this really impresses anyone who isn't already firmly on Israel's side. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that looks like Janine when I lived in Janine and they would arrest everybody. They would tell all the men, um, you know, between 17 and 35 to show up at the schoolyard or that kind of thing. And, um, you know, mass rests. Um, this is, this is, that looks like the Israel that we know uh, very well. And people in Gaza know from decades of occupation really well. Um, the thing that they've really done this time is dial up the, um, you know, technological massacres. Um, but that kind of picture right there, I think, 
people in Gaza, um, maybe not on that large a scale, but that's 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 the sort of photo that goes back to the beginnings of the Israeli occupation. Um, and I think you know what Rami Abdo said is is the concern. I think people are concerned that that's the the the, the stages before a, a massacre that they've seen before. Um, Hmm. these these photos are very disturbing this this photo is a horrific photo and then there there's another one showing truckloads of people these guys are then put in trucks and and shipped off to where and 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 who knows where they are who it's just such a brutal situation yeah yeah criminal it is. Um, we are going to um, pause on this conversation for a minute. We wanted to bring on our good friend Ahmed Asamak. He is a contributor to the Electronic Intifada. Uh, he is currently an MBA student in Dublin, Ireland, and he previously worked as a journalist in Gaza where he grew up. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us again on the Electronic Intifada live stream. How are you doing? Hi guys, thank you so much for having me for the second time. Uh, I'm good, thank you. How about you? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. We're, we're happy to see you. Ahmed. We are happy to see you. Um, can you give us thank a you, sense? Thank you. Of, thank you. Can you give us a sense of what you're hearing from your family, uh, if you're able to connect with them at all? Uh, what the situation is for them and for your friends and neighbors and 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 community members in Gaza? Unfortunately, it's uh, getting worse and worse, especially after the, after the occupation uh, has launched another ground invasion in the south after they ordered 1.1 million people from Gaza City and uh, northern that tried to go to the south. Uh, it's it's really it's really heartbreaking. Uh, last week, I've lost my uncle. Uh, he 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 was sleeping. He just was sleeping, and then they bombed uh, his his flat. He he's a father of six. Six children. The oldest uh, daughter is, I guess, seventeen or or eighteen. Uh, their mother, their mother passed away a few years ago, and now their father was killed last week, and now they are orphans, as thousands of of children gather. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what. What should I say in such a situation? Two weeks ago, before storming Shifa Hospital, they also bombed my other uncle in Gaza. Before bombing his house, my uncle evacuated to the to the uh, in the middle of the strip, and he told his family, "I will I would go there for find a place to shelter in." And then I will call you to come back after me. And then he went there. He went to the south, or in the middle of the strip, which is the south of the Gaza Valley, with his son. 
after two days, his uh, sons and daughters were supposed also to evacuate to the south. But Israel bombed them, killing two of them, Muhammad and his wife, Hiva, and wounding many children, I guess five or four of them. And my other cousins also were severely injured. After like a few days in hospital, before storming the hospital, maybe in, in two days or something like that, one of them evacuated to the south. He had to, he was injured, but he had to evacuate and to walk more than 10 kilometers on foot because there weren't any taxis or uh, any cars. So on the uh, Israeli military cross point uh, on Salah al-Din Street, they kidnapped him, they arrested him. He was injured. He just was like a 22-year-old. He's completely civilian. He, he, did, he didn't, done, he didn't did, uh, do anything wrong in his life. He's just a man who works uh, as, as a vendor. He has no military or political interest. I don't know why, why they arrested him. They brutally tortured him for nine days in Asqalan or Ashkelon uh, prison. And then they, uh, he was along with, I guess, 20 or 30 uh, Gazans. And then they released him on Karam Abu Salim a crossing point in Rafah in the south. And before releasing them, the Israeli soldiers were shooting on the ground near to them to push them and to make them just, just run. And they told me, Ahmed, they, just, they, they were like playing with us or just shooting on us, near us, and they were laughing. The point is my uncle didn't, couldn't hug his killed son for the last time before grieving, before before burying him or his uh, his wife. I like when we are talking about killing people. Sometimes I feel like ashamed when when I want to talk about my my damaged house. And this is for the third time they bombed an adjoining house to us, our neighbors, they are from uh, Abu Shusha or Abu Saud. They have two names. They were completely civilians. I don't know why, why they kill, why, why they killed them. They dropped a wanton bomb on them and they destroyed a three-story house on them, killing 10 people. And they have been under the rubble like for maybe 10 days or two weeks ago. And no one can, still, no one can bolt them up. Our house was significantly damaged. When my family, during the uh, temporary uh, truce, went to my house, to our house, to, to check and to take uh, what remained, like, from our clothes and this stuff, my brother Mu'min told me they had found a lot of, of flesh and some parts of 
from our neighbor's body in our house. Just, just. And I was talking uh, three days ago with my mom, and she told me we are thinking of uh, like, like, we want to to just to escape from all that, but we didn't find any place. Uh, after the Israeli uh, ground invasion to the south, they ordered people to go to Rafah uh, from Khan Yunis to Rafah or to uh, to Deir al Balah, which is a camp in in the middle of the strip. And my family was like, my mom told me they wanted to to evacuate there, but I told them no, don't go there, because they all are committing committing uh, massacres there, and they still uh, where they are now. The point is now they don't have they. My family has run off uh, of of gas cylinders or cooking gas. So they have to find uh, wood or uh, for for fire to cook, and they told me we did we we can't find any uh, one any shop or wood shop or in any sh- any wood like my fam my my brother go every day just walking on the streets to find cartons or wood from the streets and take the, and to take them for uh, for fire, and then. They, they, they told me like, Ahmed, we, we stopped like fi- even finding wood and cartons on the street. All people are looking for, are like looking for wood and cartons. So they had to go to my house as all my beds, our beds, cardboard doors are, were smashed and broken due to the bombing. They took the broken, all, all the wood of the broken, uh, wooden stuff to set the fire to cook. Just imagine. And yesterday he just sent me a photo of the, of what remains of my bed. And he told me, look, we are, fi- we are, we, uh, we are using it to, uh, to cook, you know, for fire to cook. Just imagine. Before traveling to Dublin, I was like, I was like, I was talking to my mom about uh, getting married, and uh, I just spared some time for marriage because ta- uh, marriage in Gaza is a little marriage costs in Gaza are high, like it costs like maybe ten thousand dollars. And I was talking with my mom about this, and now it's it's almost impossible to get married now because we have to use the all money I uh, spared for marriage to prepare the house because there isn't any word up to date about compensation or about uh, rebuilding uh, the money funding to rebuild Gaza. And again, when, when I'm talking about this, I feel... I, I like. I feel ashamed a little bit to talk about the financial losses in front of killing people and losing friends and losing relatives and uncles. I was also first. I don't know what should I say. I don't know. 
it's it just you know the the scare. I, I'm just thinking as I'm listening to you, Muhammad uh, uh, Ahmed. I'm thinking of the the video we watched earlier from our colleague Muhammad Ashad in Gaza, where he say where he said we we played a short video earlier before you joined us, uh, where he said that people don't even have time to mourn for the dead, and we've heard that from so many people because. It is a matter of survival now. People, people are just trying to get through one day at a time. And when you're trying to get through one day at a time, you do have to think about finding wood to cook. Unbelievably, in, in the 23rd, in, in the year 2023, that people are forced to look for wood in order to cook. You do have to worry about shelter. You have to, uh, to think about those things. And I think that you're even, the fact that you're even thinking about repairing your house to me is, is a, a, a sign that you see a future, that you see something in the future, that you see hope, that you're thinking about the future. And I don't think that's something to be ashamed of, Ahmed. I think that as long as we're thinking about a future, then we maintain our hope and we maintain our faith that there will be something to return to and to rebuild. So I think you should think about it in that positive way. And it, it's, I don't think we as humans are capable of understanding or comprehending this level of loss where so many people, we don't know anyone in Gaza, Ahmed, who hasn't lost Dozens of friends and family, dozens. You know, they've killed at this point one in every 100 people in Gaza. One in every 100 people. And so uh, I think it's going to take years and years for us to um, even begin to understand the scale of the loss. But in the meantime, we have to maintain our hope for the future. I think uh, Ahmed's internet connection um, was unstable and it looks like he dropped off. Um, we'll try to get him back on, um, but I think that's exactly right. I think that um, we, 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 yeah, I, I don't think that we're psychologically capable of understanding the, uh, just the, the, the breadth of this kind of catastrophe um, and nightmare. And, you know, that's for us watching it happen. Um, it's unimaginable, the exponential, uh, you know, weight of all of that on the people in Gaza right now living it. Um, Ahmed, you're back. Uh, what else can we say? Um, what you know when when you think about the future in a liberated palestine what what are you thinking about ahmed can you hear us oh maybe you can't hear us 
Um, okay, we'll try to get him back. But that's that's a you know that's a, a big question that I think a lot of people are are talking about now. Um, you know, and it has to do with like reclaiming the humanity and and um, and you know really embodying that that liberation struggle that everyone is is working toward. Um, so hopefully we can get him back on to talk about that. But in the meantime. Um, Let's talk about the resistance. John, what can we say about some of the new uh, vid- uh, jelly beans that we've been seeing? Uh, what do they tell us about um, how the pa- Palestinian resistance uh, operations are going? So I think we're going to take uh, <clears throat> the banning gamble, excuse me, um, and, and show a couple of videos here. What happened this week? Um, I think these videos are worth what worth risking our uh, we, we should we should just say i think it's important for for viewers and listeners to know that we do not have free speech on this platform uh we have had several of our videos uh summarily removed by this uh video platform uh and we've appealed those removals and they haven't come back and we know that all of these uh, big tech companies are working hand in hand to censor what they claim is misinformation or disinformation but which is actually the truth the more you tell the truth on these platforms the more likely you are to be banned that said we're going to uh, hand it to John to take us through a video and hope that uh, at least our live viewers will see i'll just say this of course we're recording this and what we'll be able to do if they do nuke our live stream afterwards is we will have the separate segments and we will be able to put them up so you'll still be able to hear the discussion with siwar or with ahmed or some of the other stuff we've done but uh, we think it's worth it worth it so let, let's go Okay, so this is this is from Shajaiya. The Israelis haven't gone into Shajaiya yet. They've avoided it. It's their uh, they have nightmares about this place from 2014. And just by looking, we can see that they're able to move from building to building. They are within feet firing these Yassins that we've talked about, Palestinian produced warheads and there's a burning Israeli armored personnel carrier which previously we hadn't seen we've seen a lot of strikes um, of these weapons but um, we ha- we haven't seen the aftermath in part because people have had to leave the scene and so here you can see in this moment that that the spotter actually tells him He's about to shoot because they can hear the armored vehicles moving down the road and he's about to shoot. And the one and the spotter says, no, no, wait, that's a bulldozer. Uh, It's not an armored personnel carrier carrying 13 soldiers or a tank carrying three to five. Um, It's a bulldozer with one person in it. So presumably they're picking their targets. They, They have the ability to have spotters in these buildings and are are picking their targets. 
in Shujaia, which is where, um, I mean, it, you can almost touch the vehicle from there. And of course, these videos I, don't match with the Israeli casualty reports that come out of Gaza, which has been something that we don't know the answer to. We're analyzing this in real time. We don't have access to the fighters right now. I'm sure there's going to be a decade of documentaries uh, that tell us these stories. But this is Shijaiya. The fighters clearly have the ability, 60 days into the war, to move between buildings, to hit point blank like this. And John, the the interesting. And then th this part, Ali. Just let me say this. This part, yeah. that's that's their fighters right there, saying this is for Wissam Farhat, who we talked about on the show on Monday, who's the Shijaiya Battalion commander that was assassinated by the Israelis um, just as the as the prisoner exchange, which presumably he was uh, very involved in. Um, was taking place. And so we actually haven't heard from Qassam that Farhat was assassinated. We've only heard from the Israelis. Um, and now this appears to be confirmation um, in the most spectacular fashion. Basically, within less than 72 hours, he was killed on, um, on Monday in Palestine, Sunday night um, here. And we're seeing their fighters um, posing outside of the burning vehicle um, and saying this is for Wassam Farhat. And just if you weren't um, with us on Monday on the show, um, I discussed him as an example, um, the battalion commander in Shajaiya, who's basically, um, his career marks the trajectory of the rise of the Qassam Brigades from a guerrilla movement to a form, basically a formal army that we're watching and we've been watching for the last 60 days. He's been the Shajaiya battalion commander, which is the most formidable according to the Israelis, the most formidable um, Qassam formation. Um, and they're the ones who were responsible for the Shujaia, um, the Battle of Shujaia, which the Israelis um, in 2014 uh, all but ended the ground invasion. They moved in from the east, Shujaia's um, on the far east side of Gaza City. So it's the first thing that you encounter if you come from the east um, to invade uh, westward into Gaza. Um, and so Shijaiya was where their forces went in and were attacked by a 360-degree ambush using tunnels, using buildings. The Israelis believed, um, according to their soldiers uh, who testified after, that they believed that they were going to have 600 dead soldiers if they didn't withdraw, and which they did. The Israelis withdrew under shellfire. Um, and it was one of the most brutal massacres in the history of the Palestine, uh, Israel-Palestine conflict up um, until this last 60 days. Um, but um, a very important battalion commander, Shajaya, he was in charge of that uh, battle, but also uh, on the other side of the border, he was in charge of the Nahul Az uh, attack, where Palestinian Qassam fighters used tunnels to come up um, and overrun an Israeli base. Um, an attempt to capture soldiers in 2014. And also he is part of um, the October 7th um, attack. And so we haven't heard from Qassam that he was assassinated. And then we get within 72 hours, this footage of a burning Israeli armored personnel carrier. So that's a personnel carrier. That's not a tank. You can see the, uh, the mounted machine gun on top of it that indicates that it's a troop carrier. 
So we're not clear what what happened, where the soldiers are. It's clear that those uh, fighters had a position uh, right there. So it doesn't appear there was any evacuation happening. Um, and that's why in that previous, earlier in the clip, it's interesting to see that we see the spotter um, say the vehicles are coming. Um, and then uh, he says, don't, don't shoot, it's a bulldozer. Let's wait and hit the armored personnel. See him put his arm down there? He's about to shoot and the spotter says, don't do it, it's a bulldozer. And so um, we discussed this previously on live streams, but they operate in units. Um, usually sets of two, um, uh, armored personnel carrier and a tank, and then the bulldozer is leading the way. Um, this is the beginnings of the invasion uh, in Shujaia because the Israelis have avoided Shujaia because of the ghosts of Shujaia, and also, um, according to some Israeli sources, that they believed that that's who would have the prisoners. Um, that's who would have the Israeli prisoners. And so they were involved in the prisoner exchange and don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but that's what happened in 2014 as well. The uh, Qassam leaders who negotiated the ceasefire were then assassinated by Israel um, as soon as the ceasefire ended, presumably using information that was derived from, um, from those negotiations. Um, and I think we talked about with the prisoner exchange, that the prisoner exchange that happened uh, last week was uh, significantly um, was very risky logistically to be involved and to be nimble and to be picking uh, who's on which list and whatnot um, is a vulnerability for the Palestinian resistance and they've been unable to reach um, Farhat for the the 13 years that he's been battalion commander of the Shijaiya battalion and before that um, when he was uh, a part of the rocket program that developed the Qassam rocket from um, a short-range uh, rocket to one that can touch almost anywhere um, in, in historic Palestine. Um, and so we're seeing, we don't know, we're putting these pieces together for our listeners because um, we don't know. We haven't, Qassam hasn't acknowledged his death. I, I don't suppose that that's what they just spectacularly did um, in that video. Um, but there's no, there's nothing that says we did this for Farhat. That's just a little tiny piece that you hear him, the fighter, saying in that video. Um, it wasn't focused on um, um, beyond the fact this, that this is their daily work. This is all in a day's work for them. It's all in but, a day's work, and it's yeah. being turned around within. So they're not holding these videos for weeks and showing the best ofs. This is a, a direct response to his assassination on Sunday night. Um, and by Wednesday morning, we're... Welcome back. And uh, that was the Electronic Intifada panel discussion uh, for Day 62. And uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. That's going to conclude our program for today. If you'd like to have access program, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And 
And uh, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And, of course, uh, we're going to close our program out uh, at this point. And uh, we'll be closing out uh, with uh, the legendary, the legendary music uh, of the legendary music of Tabule. Let's listen in.
yaya o mama e o mama